ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Thursday the 16th of November. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The Israeli military says it's found weapons and other military equipment belonging to the Hamas terrorist group inside a building at Gaza's biggest hospital. Both Hamas and staff at the Al-Shifa hospital are denying the Israeli allegations. The reported discovery comes as Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declares there is no place in Gaza we won't reach. Our Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Jerusalem. Well, Israeli troops entered Al-Shifa on Wednesday and doctors and witnesses inside have said the troops have been moving between buildings, including the basement of the surgical facility. They've been searching different areas and questioning patients inside. Now, witnesses have described the situation in there as tense but calm. The Ministry of Health has said that thousands of patients and displaced Palestinians who are sheltering inside the hospital complex have gone through a terrifying experience, as they have put it. Um, this is what Dr Mohammed Zalkut from the Ministry of Health in Gaza had to say a short while ago. Shifa Hospital is still besieged. The occupation soldiers are still in the ground floor and the bedrooms floor. They are searching employees, civilians, even the injured and patients. Some of the people at the hospital were unclothed and placed in dehumanising and miserable conditions. The soldiers are searching everything in the hospital. And Alison, has Israel said if it's achieved any of its objectives inside the hospital? Well, it says it was a precise and targeted operation searching for Hamas infrastructure and weaponry. It's just released some information saying that when Israeli troops entered the hospital, they were engaged in a gunfight with Hamas militants and those militants were killed. And Israel claims that during its searches, its troops found technological assets, military and combat equipment. It says also that in another department, the troops found an operational command centre of Hamas. Now, Israel has released some video of weaponry they say is inside the hospital. Uh, we haven't been able to independently verify that yet. yet. Uh, and Hamas has always denied it's using the hospital as a shield for its operations. But uh, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has said that having his troops inside our Shifa is a victory for his army in its mission. Do you remember when we were told that we would not break into Gaza? We've broken through. They said that we would not reach the outskirts of Gaza City. We've arrived. They told us that we would not enter Shifa. We've entered. And in this spirit, we say a simple thing. There is no place in Gaza that we will not reach. Now, the IDF says it is continuing to operate in the hospital complex. It adds that its teams there are working to prevent harm to civilians. That's our Middle East correspondent, Alison Horn. The federal government's revealing some of the details of the tough new laws it's rushing through Parliament to deal with criminals who've been released from immigration detention. More than 80 people have been released after a High Court ruling last week, which found it was unlawful to indefinitely detain people in immigration detention if there's no prospect of them being deported. Here's the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill. 
They include the ability of the Commonwealth to impose ankle monitoring bracelets on people who have been released from detention. They include the power for the Commonwealth to impose very strict curfews on people who have been released from detention. But as Tom Lowry reports, whatever Parliament does, the government could wind up back before the courts. The political pressure has piled up all week. 83 hardened criminals, rapists, pedophiles, murderers. The Australian people do not know, do not know where these hardened criminals are. The federal government was caught off guard by the High Court's swift decision that indefinite immigration detention is unlawful and dozens of people would have to be released. And after days of political attacks from the coalition demanding a legislative response, a bill is set to hit Parliament today. I think it would be deeply troublesome if the government were to attempt to um, amend the detention-related powers in, in any way in order to preemptively undercut the High Court's judgment. Sanmati Verma is acting legal director at the Human Rights Law Centre. If what the government has in mind is imposing restrictions on people's liberty in the form of ankle bracelets, um, that's a profound interference um, with people's freedom. Um, and there would be serious concerns, I think, about that from a legal point of view. Apart from possible ankle bracelets, there could be control orders restricting what the former detainees can do in the community. The coalition argues it should be possible to simply return all 83 people to detention. Here's Shadow Immigration Minister Dan Tien. There is uh, one reason why all these people were being detained, and that's because they have failed the character test. Now, we need to get them back into custody and we need to get them back into custody as soon as we possibly can. The government's already flagging its options are limited because it hasn't seen the reasons for the High Court's verdict. It might be weeks before they're revealed and the Immigration Minister, Andrew Giles, is indicating more legislation may be needed when they come. But whatever's proposed today will probably sail through Parliament this week because the Coalition has indicated support. That bipartisanship infuriates the Greens, who see no reason to rush legislation. Here's Senator Nick McKim. It's likely that this legislation will override uh, fundamental rights and freedoms, including the freedom of liberty, which uh, should never be overridden hastily or carelessly. Sanmati Verma takes issue with how the people at the centre of this, the 83 people released from detention, are being characterised and how they might be treated going forward. These are deeply vulnerable people in some cases, some quite elderly who have very serious physical and psychological conditions. So upon such people to impose restrictions such as ankle bracelets is a substantial and severe restriction of people's liberty, which one must admit is simply a different form of punishment. The ABC asked the Immigration Minister for an interview. He was unavailable. Tom Lowry with that report. Debate will continue in federal parliament today about the Albanese government's attempt to rewrite the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which sets out how the water in Australia's largest rivers is shared. It includes a controversial proposal to buy back hundreds of gigalitres of water from farmers across the basin. But as Kath Sullivan reports, river users say the water's value can't always be measured in environmental and economic terms. Wednesday night at the Barham Lawn tennis courts and the sausages are sizzling as kids run between the courts and their parents sneak a midweek beer between sets. The grain harvest is underway in this community in western New South Wales, which means numbers are down. There's a few young kids getting roped in to fill spots on the, the tennis teams tonight. <laughs> between games, Kate O'Neill explains she moved home to the river town with her young family a few years ago 
and hasn't looked back. The pull of the river, yes, I think that's a big factor in us moving back here. Like, we didn't want to move back to any country town we needed we wanted to have a natural feature so because we grew up here on the river it just seemed a logical choice and our whole social calendar revolves around the river. A couple of hours drive upstream and the river provides a quieter way of life for First Nations man Fred Baxter. Tell us about life living here on the river. Magic. Despite having a house on shore at Robinvale, he prefers to live in the houseboat on the river. I'd rather live on here than up there. As you know, you're sitting here, it's peaceful, quiet, the river's right there, got nothing to worry about down here. Up there, you've got to worry about everything. From a way of life to a livelihood, irrigation has allowed farmers to grow their business and the basin produces more than $22 billion of food and fibre every year from more than 7,000 irrigation businesses. But this year, not all irrigators are making money. Our farmers are starting to begin to feel numb because it's so stressful. It's the worst time farmers are experiencing. In South Australia's Riverland, wine grape growers like Simi Gill are struggling. China's ban on our wine means prices are so low, some growers are pulling vines out. It was very sad, and it's very sad to see that, look how beautiful these grapes are, the greenery in the Riverland, and when you look around, you look at it, how beautiful they are, but yet there's no value. The federal government has proposed using water typically used to grow food and fibre to instead boost the environment. If the legislation before the parliament is passed, it could allow hundreds of gigalitres to be diverted from farming to environmental flows, a prospect that Simi Gill says she may be forced to consider if the price for wine grapes doesn't pick up soon. If there is a very good buyback scheme and good value, you know, we could use it on our loans, we could use it to reduce our bills. It could definitely work for people who have the water to sell, but then again, are we going to have enough water to irrigate our farms is another big question mark. South Australian wine grape grower Simi Gill ending that report from Kath Sullivan and Nathan Morris. As multiple investigations continue into the nationwide Optus phone and internet outage, more people who couldn't make emergency calls are speaking up. It's expected to be a hot topic when a Senate inquiry kicks off tomorrow. The communications regulator is also looking at why the telecommunications company didn't meet its obligation to ensure that people could call triple zero. Mary Lloyd reports. Waking just before 4am last Wednesday, Adrian Ashenden felt very unwell. So I called for my wife to get my phone so I could call Triple O because I thought I was in a bit of danger. The cancer patient, who's undergoing radiation therapy, wasn't the only thing on the verge of collapse. About the same time, the entire Optus network failed, leaving millions of customers unable to make calls access the internet or, as Adrian Ashenden discovered, call for help. The screen was blank and there was no dial tone. So they tried his wife's phone. And same thing, blank screen, no dial tone. We're getting a bit anxious by this time because I needed help. And um, we just didn't know what to do because neither of the phones was working. Optus is now facing multiple inquiries over the network blackout, including a Senate inquiry, which begins tomorrow. It's expected to examine Optus's failure to connect some customers to triple zero, an issue the communications regulator, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, is also examining. 
simply this should not happen. This is just unacceptable. Independent telecommunications analyst Paul Boudet says networks are supposed to be set up so that calls can still be made to emergency services in an outage. Normally what you have is that the triple zero is a totally dedicated, separated system, not connected to the other services. So if something goes wrong with the telephone network, then basically, you know, that triple zero network still continues to operate. The telecommunications industry ombudsman Cynthia Gabert has told the ABC her office has prioritised complaints from customers who couldn't contact the service and that they've had to allocate extra resources to handle the increased volume of complaints resulting from the outage. Paul Boudet wants better cooperation among networks so if one network fails, customers can access an alternative for all avenues of communication, not just calls to triple zero. We need to have better systems in place simply because telecommunications, the internet, IT systems are critical to our economy and our society. After several attempts, Adrian Ashenden's wife did manage to get through to triple zero and paramedics arrived promptly to take him to hospital. He also wants a thorough review into how to prevent a similar outage again. I look back and I think, gee whiz, that just wasn't good enough. This was a situation where if things were just slightly different, I wouldn't be here. Optus has repeatedly apologised to customers and says it's taken steps to ensure such a large outage doesn't happen again. That report from Mary Lloyd and producer Leonie Thorne. There's good and bad news today about our use of antibiotics. A major report shows a nearly 20% drop in their use in recent years. But they're still being overprescribed, meaning common infections are becoming increasingly dangerous because they're not responding to the drugs or they're becoming resistant to them. Nick Grimm explains. 39-year-old Jacob Dyer is one of millions around the world who's fallen victim to an antibiotic-resistant superbug. Yeah, so I got a, um, a small scratch, like less than a centimetre, from uh, my 12-week-old puppy. Um, and then 48 hours later, I was um, headed into the emergency department uh, feeling very unwell. Struggling to breathe, the Ballarat father of two was rushed into intensive care and then surgery. I woke up about three days later from a coma and had my kidneys, liver, heart, stomach, uh, everything fail. I had a heart attack during the coma as well from the stress of the infection and they had told my family that it was very unlikely that I would survive. Doctors say superbugs like the one Jacob Dye contracted are evolving as a result of the overuse and misuse of antibiotics. And Australians are some of the worst culprits, even if a new report has found we've cut back. While there were almost 22 million scripts written last year, the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare has found an 18% decrease in the use of antimicrobials since 2019. But Senior Medical Advisor for the Commission, Professor John Turnage, says the decrease is largely due to the pandemic. Of course, people were locked down or they weren't going to their doctor, but they also weren't getting viral infections. So when they went don't get in viral infections, they don't go to the doctor and get antibiotics inappropriately. The report also finds 23% of antimicrobials used in Australian hospitals are inappropriately prescribed, 
while in aged care facilities it's estimated 35% are prescribed merely as a precaution. Even today, use of antibiotics in the community in Australia is twice that of the Netherlands. Now, when you think about it, the Netherlands people, the Dutch people, get the same infections as we do. And yet they're not all dying because we didn't give them antibiotics. Trouble is, too many people ask their doctors for antibiotics when sick with a head cold or similar lurgy. But most respiratory infections are viral, which means antibiotics do nothing to help. Dr Michael Bonning is the president of the New South Wales branch of the Australian Medical Association. And they have been seen as a panacea since they were developed, but in actual fact they represent a race against time because we know that they become over time less and less effective. New South Wales Medical Association president Dr Michael Bonning ending that report from Nick Grimm and Emily Lawrence. Families struggling to find somewhere affordable to rent in regional Western Australia are questioning why so many public housing properties are empty. Advocates say it's forcing people to live in overcrowded and unsafe conditions, as Alice Angeloni reports. For Dina Comagain and her two-year-old son, Boston, it's been a tough few months living with different family members in homes with up to ten people under the one roof at times. I get sick every chance you get. Put up with him being sick, not being stable. I want to get him, be able to get him in daycare and stuff as well, and I can't even do that being homeless. She's struggled to find an affordable rental after her private rental property was sold and is frustrated to see empty public housing with boarded-up windows in her hometown of Geraldton. I feel angry when they keep telling me the same yarn, like it's over and over the same constant story. And it's, they don't have contractors on site for the houses to be fixed that are boarded up. When that's their job to get that fixed, to get the people so they can be fixed, so people can be housed. Latest figures from WA's Department of Communities show there are 191 vacant public housing properties in the Midwest and Gascoyne region, which includes Geraldton and Carnarvon. It's the highest rate of empty public housing in WA, three times the state average. Statewide, there are almost 1,400 vacant properties. In a statement, a spokesperson for the department says it's led a concerted effort to reduce the number of vacant properties in the region, but that ongoing effects of Cyclone Sarosia in April 2021 and the collapse of the department's property maintenance contractor in the area have hampered efforts. The spokesperson says antisocial behaviour and property damage are also playing a part. Betsy Buchanan works for Daydawn Advocacy Centre and supports Indigenous families seeking housing across Western Australia. I believe with all the ingenuity the state have, they could make sure we don't have so many empty housing. I don't really buy their reasons that they can't organise it because the government have given them a huge amount of money. And they could employ First Nations people to repair the houses if they can't do it themselves. She says overcrowding is leading to many health issues. It means that the children get very ill and go into hospital and that places huge stress on the entire family. Dina Cumagain is now on the public housing priority wait list, but she knows it could be months or years before something comes up. What would you most look forward to about having a place of your own? Being stable, putting, having my safe haven for my baby, putting him in daycare and getting my life back on track, getting a job again and just being stable actually because it's taken mentally, physically over me now. 
Geraldton resident Dina Cummigan ending Alice Angeloni's report. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. As we head into summer, communities in high-risk areas are being urged to get ready for the worst bushfire season since the Black Summer fires of 2019-2020. Today, we speak to two homeowners who've lived through it all before and are taking matters into their own hands. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.